Hello, and welcome to the story of Rhode Island, the podcast that tells you the story of Rhode Island's fascinating history. In last week's episode, we watched the American Army hold their line at Butts Hill and fight valiantly throughout the Battle of Rhode Island. But since that historic battle, things have taken a turn for the worse, and now the Americans are on the verge of losing the Revolutionary War. Their woes began back in the spring of 1780, back when the British unleashed a devastating campaign against the American Southern Army. British General Charles Cornwallis defeated the American General Benjamin Lincoln at the Seas of Charleston in May, and then went on to humiliate Lincoln's predecessor, Horatio Gates, during the Battle of Camden in August. Not only did these losses lead to thousands of American casualties, but constant supply issues also left those who did survive without adequate food and clothing, along with receiving little, if any, pay. By the time the fall of 1780 arrived, it seemed as though it would only be a matter of time before the American Southern Army was defeated, an event that would lead to the British retaking the Southern colonies and eventually enable them to squash the Americans' rebellion entirely. So with the situation growing more dire every day, General George Washington has decided to call on his most trusted general to revive the Southern Army. As we jump into Episode 8, we follow this man as he walks amongst the soldiers that he's been tasked with saving. It's a December day in 1780, and General Nathaniel Green is shocked to see the current state of the 1,500 desperate individuals he must somehow lead to victory. While approaching one of the regiments, Green sees a group of men huddled around a poorly lit fire. As one of the soldiers vigorously rubs his hands together in an attempt to get warm, his fragile body shakes from the cold that penetrates the ragged blanket resting on his back. Eventually, the man realizes that the new commander of their army has approached his camp, so he slowly stands to salute the general. While Green peers deeply into the man's hollow eyes, eyes that seem better fit for somebody that's about to be lowered into a grave than a man tasked with fighting a war, he knows that this man widely represents the state of the army that he's been tasked to lead. And yet, it will be up to Green to somehow dig these men out of this dire situation. Green knows that his mission is nearly impossible, but at the same time, it's exactly the type of mission that he's been hoping for. Because if he's somehow able to revive the Southern Army and prevent the British from retaking the Southern colonies, then he'll forever be remembered as the general who saved the American Revolution. Over the next several months, Green will use some extremely daring maneuvers and highly unconventional tactics that often put his men in grave danger. But by the time it's all said and done, he will have pulled off what many historians consider to be the most brilliant military performance of the entire Revolutionary War. The story of how Nathaniel Green saves the American Revolution is what we'll cover in this week's episode of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. It's a cold December day in 1780, and sitting comfortably at his headquarters in Winsboro, South Carolina, is Lord Charles Cornwallis, commander of the British Southern Army and the man largely responsible for wreaking havoc throughout the southern colonies. As the general sits at his camp located about 60 miles south of the American army, he daydreams of the day when this war is finally over. The Revolutionary War has been a burden to Cornwallis since it first began. And like everyone else fighting in this war, he's ready for the conflict to finally come to an end. Thankfully, Cornwallis believes that he sees a light at the end of the tunnel, as the American Southern Army is on the verge of being defeated. Once that happens, Cornwallis will bring the Southern colonies back under British control. 
Then, he'll head up north and meet up with General Henry Clinton, so that it can destroy Washington's army as well. Even one of the rebel army's most admired generals, Benedict Arnold, has seen the writing on the wall as well, and decided to turn against his fellow Americans back in September. While this man's name is probably already familiar to you, you might also remember learning about his ancestors back in season one of this podcast. It was Benedict Arnold's great-great-grandfather, William Arnold, who helped Roger Williams found the town of Providence in 1636. Then, Benedict Arnold's great-grandfather, a man who shares the same name as the infamous traitor, served multiple terms as the governor of Rhode Island. Cornwallis believes that Arnold's betrayal represents just how dire of a situation the Americans find themselves in. And unfortunately, he's correct. All Cornwallis needs to do is deliver one final blow to the rebel southern army so that he can wrap this thing up and head home. So like a predator stalking its prey, Cornwallis watches his enemies every move, and there's nobody he has his eye on more than their newest leader, General Nathaniel Green. In Green, Cornwallis sees everything that he's not. While Cornwallis's aristocratic background gave him a clear path to the top of British military society, Green comes from a family who had to build their success on the shores of the Potawatomi River. Also, Cornwallis graduated from Cambridge and Eton, some of the finest schools in England, while Green is largely self-educated via books that his Quaker father typically disapproved of. And to top it off, Cornwallis has been in the military since Green was just a teenager back when Green's father was still telling him about the evils of war. So as the leader of Britain's southern army sits at his headquarters, he does so with a smile on his face, firmly believing that it'll only be a matter of time before he shows this inexperienced, poorly educated general just how much he knows about war, enabling him to forever be known as a British general who finally crushed the colonist rebellion in North America. But in the midst of dreaming of his future success, Cornwallis hears some shocking news about Nathaniel Green and his army. He's just been informed that Green has decided to divide his forces. When Cornwallis first hears the news, he literally doesn't believe it. By splitting up his army, Green has just defied one of the most cardinal principles in military strategy. Never divide your army when up against a superior enemy force. And yet, that's exactly what Green has done. But not only that, He's also put Cornwallis's army directly in between his divided forces. He's done so by taking about 1,100 soldiers southeast to the PD River, while sending a smaller, more agile force of 600 soldiers and 80 dragoons under General Daniel Morgan about 100 miles to the west. At first, the plan seems to be somewhat idiotic, but as the weeks play out, the brilliance of Green's plan becomes clear to all. First, by dividing his army, it makes it easier for Green to strengthen his forces, as resupplying two small armies is a less daunting task than resupplying one large one. This proves to be accurate, as Green is able to provide his main army some much-needed supplies while being camped out at the Petey River. Also, because Green has chosen to position his armies on opposite sides of the British army, it makes it difficult for Cornwallis to choose where he should attack the Americans. If he heads west to attack Morgan, then it leaves Charleston vulnerable to Green's forces to the east. Conversely, if he attacks Green to the east, then South Carolina's interior will be left unprotected against Morgan's highly mobile army. And so, for the next couple of weeks, Cornwallis is left somewhat frozen in place as he's not exactly sure what to do. But as he watches Green's main army grow stronger, while Morgan's agile forces raid loyalist outposts throughout South Carolina, he realizes that he has to act. So in early January, Cornwallis sends one of his most gifted generals, Bannister Tarleton, to attack General Morgan's army in Cowpen, South Carolina. 
If Tarleton's offensive were to be successful, it could bring Green's campaign to an abrupt end and add him to the list of American generals who was outskilled by Cornwallis. But thankfully, that's not what happens. When the Battle of Cowpens takes place, Morgan ends up defeating Tarleton's army by leveraging a brilliant battle scheme of his own. The American general instructs his first two lines of militia units to fall back after firing only two rounds, knowing that the always aggressive Tarleton would send his cavalry forward into what he thought was a retreating army. Tarleton does in fact take the bait, and just as his men get within killing distance, a group of extremely accurate marksmen fire into the enemy lines. Then, Morgan has his cavalry swoop in from the side and deliver one last devastating blow. By the end of the fighting, over 800 of Tarleton's 1,100 troops are either killed or captured, while Morgan's army only suffers about 72 casualties. The defeat not only puts a dent in the British Southern Army that exists for the remainder of the war, but it also helps to reignite the Patriot Southern Rebellion. When Cornwallis learns of the defeat, he's furious and becomes hell-bent on destroying Morgan's army. To help ensure this happens, Cornwallis reunites his forces and begins chasing Morgan throughout the countryside. Knowing that his army stands no chance at defeating Cornwallis, Morgan retreats north and agrees with Greene that it's time to reunite their army. But what Greene now wants to do with their newly reunited army shocks Daniel Morgan, as it is yet another extremely daring plan. As we watch Greene share his plan with his fellow American officer, we once again learn just how brilliant of a military tactician this general from Rhode Island has now become. General Daniel Morgan, a rugged individual standing over six feet tall, can be seen looking at General Nathaniel Green in disbelief. After growing up with quite a difficult childhood, and then going on to fight in both the French and Indian War and the American Revolution, Morgan is not a man easily intimidated. But what he's just heard from Green scares the hell out of him. Instead of moving their reunited army west into the mountains, a location that Morgan knows would keep them safe from the bloodthirsty Cornwallis, Green wants to do quite the opposite. He wants to retreat north so that he can lure Cornwallis into chasing them, knowing that by doing so, it will drag the British further away from their supply lines in the south while moving the Americans closer to their supply lines in Virginia. Not only would this make it easier for the Americans to resupply their weakened army, but it would wear the British down at the same time. Then, when the British are at their weakest, they can turn their forces around and fight Cornwallis head on. When Green finishes telling Morgan the plan, he has a glorious look on his face. But no such expression can be seen on Morgan's face. In fact, every single part of his body makes it abundantly clear just how much he disapproves of the risky plan. He tells Green that if Cornwallis were to catch them before they make it to their supply lines in Virginia, then they'd be forced to fight the British before they're ready, an event that would almost certainly destroy their army. Green responds by letting Morgan know that he's well aware of the dangers that come with his plan. But he's already made it clear that the time for half measures has passed. If the war in the South is to be won, then risks must be taken. So with that mentality driving his decision-making, Green tells Morgan that they're moving forward with the plan immediately. Morgan obediently accepts the orders of his superior, but makes it clear that this decision is Green's and Green's alone. If anything goes wrong, he refuses to be held responsible. Green, now becoming a bit annoyed, responds by saying, quote, And neither will you for I shall take the matter upon myself, unquote. And that's exactly what he does. In late January, Green begins moving his army north, and the race for Virginia begins. As soon as Cornwallis hears of the Americans' retreat, he once again becomes hell-bent on running them down. 
As the armies trudge through horrific weather conditions with little sleep, there's numerous times when it looks as though Cornwallis will catch the American army. But Green manages to avoid being caught each and every time. As the days pass, the British soldiers continue growing weaker, but Cornwallis refuses to give up the chase. Then, with the Americans being just miles away from the Dan River, the last remaining obstacle between them and their supply depot in Virginia, the British get dangerously close. Green knows that if the British beat them to the Dan River, then it'll block the retreat and force them into a battle that they're not ready to fight. It's in this critical moment when Green pulls off yet another impressive maneuver. It begins when he once again divides his army in the face of a superior force, so that he can put a regiment of light infantry in between him and Cornwallis, helping to ensure that his main army remains out of harm's way. Then, as both sides aggressively continue pushing towards the Dan River, Green fools Cornwallis by having his light infantry unit head towards Dix's Ferry, making Cornwallis think that's where he'll be crossing the Dan River. But that's not the case. In actuality, the Americans will be crossing the Dan River about 20 miles east of Dix's Ferry at Irwin's Ferry. And just as Green had hoped for, Cornwallis takes the bait, allowing his main army to safely cross the Dan River, along with his light infantry following close behind. When the Americans finally make it into Virginia safely, they are able to breathe a sigh of relief for the first time in weeks. Meanwhile, Cornwallis, knowing that his army can't take much more, decides it's time to turn his men around and head back south to resupply his men. When the Americans in Virginia hear that Cornwallis has given up the chase, they are thrilled, and over the next few days, they're resupplied with food, clothing, and additional troops. As they sit around their campfires with their bellies full and spirits high, the men are overcome with the feeling of ease, a sensation that they haven't felt in a while. But ease isn't what the highly ambitious general from Rhode Island wants. No, Green wants victory. He wants his name cemented in history and his fellow Americans allowed to live in their own independent nation. However, he knows that such a valiant outcome will never be gained while sitting comfortably around a campfire. Instead, he must once again choose the more difficult path. He must recross the Dan River and fight the man who so badly wants to destroy what the Americans are fighting for. And so, Green gathers up his men and heads directly towards the enemy forces. Then, just a couple of weeks later, Green and Cornwallis come toe-to-toe at a courthouse in North Carolina. And now, these two men from completely different worlds will finally find out who will get what they've been working so hard to achieve. This is the moment that Nathaniel Green has been waiting for. After somehow finding a way to revive America's southern army, Green and his soldiers stationed in Guilford County, North Carolina, now have a chance to wrap up their brilliant campaign. And with their forces having just been reinforced with additional troops, Green's army now stands over 4,400 strong. Standing to the south of Green is Cornwallis's army of professionally trained British and German soldiers who just spent the past couple of weeks chasing Green through the countryside. As Green waits for the fighting to begin, he observes the battlefield that they'll be fighting on. Located beside Green, on top of a hill by the Guilford County Courthouse, is Green's third line of defense. Their strategic high ground gives them a strong defensive position for when the fighting inevitably reaches their line. Further in front of Green are his two other lines of defense. His second line has been positioned inside of a densely wooded forest located not too far past the hill that Green stands on. Then, at the front of that forest, is his first line of defense, a group of men who will bear the brunt of the enemy's initial attack. Due to the battlefield's thickly wooded terrain, Green will have to rely on his ears to know how the men in his first two lines are fighting. He can only hope that they'll make him proud. 
Then, at about one in the afternoon, the sound of American artillery can be heard coming from the south, and Green knows that the Battle of Guilford's Courthouse has begun. The sound of cannons being fired continues for another 30 minutes and then subsides, allowing Cornwallis to unleash his first attack against Green's front line. The inexperienced militiamen making up the first line only get off one round before they begin a hasty retreat into the woods behind them. Luckily, Green's more experienced flanking regiments remain steady, and they unleash a deadly array of bullets against the charging enemy. Within seconds, British and German soldiers are shot down left and right, and many quickly succumb to their wounds. But eventually, the enemy troops regroup, and Green's flanking lines are forced to retreat as well. As Green continues to pace back and forth on his horse, he intensely listens to the sound of battle going on in the dense woods in front of him. Before long, Green looks towards the right side of that forest and begins seeing a handful of American troops from his first and second lines in a steady retreat. Over the next few minutes, that handful of soldiers quickly turns into a flood of men desperately trying to escape the enemy. Then, the wave of American soldiers comes to an end, and a series of men dressed in red coats are seen lining up at the edge of the woods. And within what seems a matter of seconds, multiple lines of British soldiers are seen lined up in front of Green's right wing. Knowing that the British are about to strike any moment now, Green begins shouting words of encouragement to his men. He tells them to be brave and remember that this is their country they are fighting for. As a flood of redcoats comes charging up the hill, the Continental soldiers, the most experienced and well-trained men in his army, stand there with their weapons steadily pointed towards the enemy. The British continue rushing forward, and eventually they get to within a hundred paces of the Continentals. Then, with the British only 30 paces away, one of Green's officer yells, Fire! And a loud bang is heard, coming from the American guns. Almost instantly, a huge group of British soldiers are seen falling to the ground, and men begin screaming while they clutch their wounds in pain. After firing another deadly round at the enemy soldiers, the number of dead bodies and redcoats on the battlefield quickly begins to add up, and before long, the British are forced to retreat. For a minute, it seems as though Green might be able to turn this battle into his favor, but then his left wing comes under attack as well. The inexperienced militia, making up Green's left wing, only fire one ineffective volley before they begin retreating. As British soldiers advance forward, it looks as though the Americans are doomed, but in the nick of time, Green's cavalry swoops in and unleashes a catastrophic attack against the infantry soldiers. As Green watches the attack unfold, he becomes excited, as it's beginning to look as though Green's left wing will overrun the enemy, just like we saw with the right wing moments earlier. But then, something completely unexpected happens. Green begins to see British cannon fire landing in the melee that's taking place between his cavalry and the British infantry. As the cannonballs continue to take out men from both sides, Green stands there bewildered, trying to understand if Cornwallis knows that he's firing at his own men. But then, he realizes that Cornwallis knows exactly what he's doing. He's made the conscious decision to fire into the melee, knowing that although it will kill some of his own men, it'll also force the American officers to call off their cavalry's attack. Green is disgusted by the senseless act, but at the same time, he knows it'll work. Within minutes, Green sees his cavalry retreating, and the melee is indeed broken up. With the fighting now cleared, Cornwallis's men begin regrouping so that they can launch another assault on Green's final line of defense. It's at this point when Green has a very difficult decision to make. After two hours of intense fighting, the Americans have inflicted serious casualties on Cornwallis's army, and Green knows that he can either continue fighting, a decision that could lead to him winning the day, but at the same time could lead to his army being destroyed or he could retreat while there's still time. 
The decision pains Green, as he's been hoping he would have been able to defeat Cornwallis outright on the battlefield. But for the first time in months, he decides that this is a risk he's not willing to take. Therefore, Green, showing his ability to know when enough is enough, instructs his officers to initiate a retreat. Immediately, the commanders instruct their front lines to hold the ground so that their regiments can begin evacuating the battlefield. The soldiers execute the orders flawlessly, and Green's army hands over Guilford's courthouse to Cornwallis. While at first the retreat might make the battle seem like a disappointment, in actuality, it's the complete opposite. It's exactly the type of engagement that Green needed. Not only did Green's men fight extremely well throughout the battle, but they also inflicted serious casualties on the enemy. By the time the smoke is cleared and the bodies are counted, over 25% of Cornwallis' entire southern army has either been killed or wounded. And it's here that we are reminded that wars are not only fought on the battlefield, but in the minds of the public as well. When news of Cornwallis' supposed victory makes it back to England, the anti-war voices in Parliament grow even louder than before. And one leading member in Parliament states how, quote, another such victory would ruin the British army, unquote. Then, people in England begin crying out that the war is pointless, as the Americans simply won't give up, a mentality that Green has exemplified every day since taking over the Southern Army. And as the months pass, things continue to move in favor of the Americans. After the Battle of Guilford's Courthouse, Cornwallis' army is so depleted that he's forced to give up his chase of Green's Southern Army and head to Yorktown, Virginia, so that he can reunite with General Henry Clinton. With Cornwallis no longer in the picture, Green's army continues their southern campaign by fighting a few more battles with the British enemy. But by September of 1781, Green regains control of the southern interior and forever cements his place in history as the savior of the south. What Green has just accomplished is nothing short of miraculous. It was just a year earlier when the American southern army was on the verge of being defeated and their ragged force of a measly 1,500 men was just waiting to be destroyed by General Cornwallis. But thanks to the general from Rhode Island, that never happened. Instead, Green defied conventional military wisdom so that he could create a highly mobile army that solely enabled him to resupply his men while giving his lead general, Daniel Morgan, the opportunity to win a series of key victories. Then, when many would have considered that to be enough, Green decided that instead of running to the hills for safety, he would lure the bloodthirsty Cornwallis into a cat-and-mouse chase. And finally, after weakening the enemy while strengthening his own forces, Green turned around and faced Cornwallis head-on at a courthouse in North Carolina, allowing him to unleash such a devastating blow that it forced Cornwallis to give up his southern campaign. It's also important to remember that all of this was accomplished by a man who grew up in a Quaker household that taught him to despise the evils of war. A man who joined the revolution with zero military experience, and whose limp made his very own comrades in the Kentish Guards reluctant to even march with him. One can only imagine those men's faces when they learned about Green pulling off one of the most brilliant military performances of the entire Revolutionary War. And luckily for those men, and many more, this deadly conflict will not go on for much longer. By the end of 1781, the opposing forces will go on to engage in the final major battle of the American Revolution, and the Americans will finally win their independence. When that happens, Rhode Island, like the other 12 states, will celebrate their success. However, unlike the other 12 states, Rhode Island will go on to reject the newly created government that their nation creates. In fact, they will protest that new government so fiercely that it will put them at odds with the rest of their nation. And before long, 
the people living around Narragansett Bay, will once again be seen as a group of radical outcasts, a group so defiant that many will wonder if they should even be part of the new nation that they are building. But that's a story for next time on the season finale of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Thank you for listening to the Story of Rhode Island. If you are enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave a review and to follow the podcast as well. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode and others as well, you can visit storyofrhodeisland.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Story of Rhode Island or on Facebook at the Story of Rhode Island Podcast. Thank you again and see you next time.